0: Greetings and welcome to Etzheim's Weekly Podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Our Technical people? Okay. Well, Shabbat Shalom. And Shabbat Shalom, everyone watching at home on YouTube as well. Uh, we are in a series, we've been in for a while. This is part six uh, on the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, last week, we looked at the fruit of patience, uh, which is also in the Greek, uh, long-suffering. And this week, I want us to look at another aspect of patience, so spending two weeks on on this fruit, is so important, uh, overcoming anger. I guess it's very appropriate in this whole election season to be talking about anger and overcoming anger. (laughs) Uh, And as you know, the the overarching theme of this whole series is that we don't want to uh, just have, have these character traits in our life because we have a morally restrained heart. We want to be living out these character traits because we have a supernaturally changed heart. Amen. So to get at this theme, I'm going to start by looking at 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. And we have it on the overhead as well. 1 John 3, uh, verse 11. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Don't be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters. If the world hates you. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a fellow believer is a murderer. And you know that no murderers have eternal life in them. This is how we know what love is. Yeshua the Messiah laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. If any of you has material possessions, since he's a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? Dear children, let us not love with words and tongue, but with actions and truth. Amen. This fruit of the spirit of patience, more than any of the other fruits, has to do with forgiveness and overcoming anger. A believer is someone who knows how to deal with your anger. Because anger can tear you apart, whether you vent it or you repress it. Being prone to outbursts of anger is not living in the fruit of the spirit of patience. But on the other hand, also being totally controlled at all all times and never blowing up does not necessarily mean that you're patient either. Because the Bible says that a patient person is someone who knows how to properly deal with their anger on the overhead a patient person is someone who knows, number one, knows how to forgive, and number two, knows how to deal with their anger. Now, biblically, this ability to, to deal with anger, uh, to pray for your enemies, uh, to forgive others, to pray for your oppressors, to repay evil with good, this is an essential sign of being a true believer. You know, it was the Yeshua followers who were praying for their enemies in the first century, for a few centuries. And they were being led into the lion's dens in the Roman Colosseum. While they were being thrown to the lions, they were singing hymns and praising God. And, and praying for God's forgiveness on their captors. As the lions came and tore out their throats, the believers were praying for their oppressors. And the people in the stands were saying, "Hmm." This is crazy. We, we've never seen anything like this. Uh, these Christians praying for the ones who are killing them. And it was an amazing testimony. From the very beginning, the ability of Yeshua followers to deal with their anger and to extend forgiveness has, has been one of the key signs of their faith. And of course, they were just following their Messiah himself. The one who sat on the cross in Luke twenty-three thirty-four. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, in our passage here in 1 John uh, chapter 3, John uh, he's talking about how important it is to, to control anger because murder is essentially anger unleashed uh, and taken to its logical conclusion. Almost all murders start with anger. All wars start with anger. I've just seen in this country over the, over the last several months, all riots start with anger. This passage here talks about Cain, who couldn't control his anger against his brother, and it led to murder. So I want to talk today about anger, and in addition to the passage we just read in First John 3, I want us to look especially at Ephesians 4, verse 26 to 32, because this is probably the, the number one passage in the whole Bible on the theme of anger. So turn to Ephesians 4, verse 26, and Paul says this, in your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer. But must work. Do something useful with their own hands. That they may have something to share with those in need. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. But only what's helpful for building others up. According to their needs. That it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit. With whom you've been sealed. The day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness. Rage. Anger. Brawling. Slander. Along with every form of malice. Be kind. And compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other. Just as in Messiah. God forgave you. Notice three things here. Number one. Verse 26. We're told that anger in itself is not necessarily a sin. Look at verse, Ephesians 4, 26. In your anger, don't sin. Notice Paul doesn't say don't sin and therefore never be angry. No, he says in your anger don't sin. On the overhead, anger is the nuclear energy of the heart. Like nuclear energy, it's an extremely dangerous emotion. And like nuclear energy, if it's really dealt with properly, If you can dispose of the waste properly, if you can make sure it's properly harnessed, you can do some good with it. And and, and we know anger is not sinful in itself, both because of what the passage says here, but also because throughout the Bible we see examples of God himself being angry. We see Yeshua being angry. Anger is energy for tearing things up. Anger occurs in defense of something and to destroy something. And, 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 and you get angry when there's something that you believe in that that's worth uh, defending and it's being threatened. Then you release the anger towards the person, the thing you believe is threatening something uh, that you hold dear. So anger is energy released to defend something uh, and to destroy something. So if you want to understand your anger, ask yourself, what am I defending? What am I trying to destroy? On the overhead, the New Covenant has two main words it uses for anger. The first one is is tumos, which literally means an explosion. It's got a quick emotional blaze. The other word is is orge, which means a settled opposition, working against something, undermining it, uh, seeking for someone or something's downfall. On the overhead, usually in the Bible, orge has to do with God's wrath. God doesn't lose his temper. God doesn't have tumos. Uh, instead, the Bible talks about God's anger. His anger is released in, in defense of something good. His anger destroys things righteously. We see an example of godly anger in Mark 3, where Yeshua wants to heal someone, and the Pharisees criticize him because it's, it's the Shabbat. And the Pharisees say, Oh, you can't do this on the Sabbath. Oh, you're, not, you're not allowed to heal on Shabbat. And Yeshua gets furious. He's angry. Why? Because God's law is being twisted. So look at Mark 3, verse 4. Then Yeshua asked the Pharisees, Which is lawful on Shabbat? To do good or to do evil? To save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. Yeshua looked around at them in anger uh, and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. So here we see Yeshua himself getting angry uh, with a godly anger. He's angry at how the religious leaders twisted the word of God. Now, how does Yeshua deal with his anger? He looks at the Pharisees and he heals the man. He breaks right through their bias. He says, you're misapplying, uh, you're perverting the word of God and it's wrong. And then he channels his anger. He uses it productively, redemptively to heal someone, to do good on the Shabbat thus restoring the original meaning of the Sabbath. This is a great example of how Yeshua lets his mercy and his anger flow together and how he uses his godly anger, to channel it into acts of mercy. God the Father acts the same way, unsurprisingly. <laughs> his anger is against evil. Indeed, think about this. God invented the cross on which Yeshua died for our sins. He invented it out of his anger for evil. God hates sin, and therefore he's got to deal with it. So he pours his wrath and his opposition out upon it. And yet God wanted to do it in such a way that it did not destroy sinners. That it did not destroy you and me. So how can God justly deal with sin, yet at the same time channel his anger in such a way that it does not destroy us, the sinners? How can God destroy evil and sin without destroying us? on the tree, on the execution stake. So we see interestingly that it was God's mercy and his love that led him to the cross. Indeed, it was his love for us that caused him to invent the cross as the means of satisfying the demands of his justice while at the same time saving us. So we see God's anger and his love coming together on the tree, on the cross. There he's able to save us and pour pour out his wrath on sin at the same time. And these examples show us that anger in and of itself is not per se sinful. Indeed, anger is not the opposite of love. In fact, often somebody you love, you get angry at them when they're, when they're destroying themselves or someone, something is destroying them. Uh, you get angry at them for destroying themselves. So in this example, a lack of anger would actually be a lack of love. So anger in and of itself is not sinful. Having said that, however however, for most of us, most of the time, our anger is sinful. Our anger is usually sinful. Ephesians 4, 29. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. The word unwholesome here literally means to stink, to be putrid, uh, to decay. So, for example, you take something that used to be alive uh, and it dies, put it in a box Keep it there for a while, then in about a week, open it up, see what it smells like. <laughs> it's rancid. It's acidic. Let no putrid, rancid, acidic talk come out of your mouth, and that's usually what anger does. Good verse thirty-one Ephesians Ephesians four thirty-one. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, slander, and every form of malice. Now, the normal way we use anger is to defend our ego and we release it to destroy other people. That's the normal way anger operates. We're either defending our ego or we're defending some of our idolatrous goals, things we feel we just have to have. That's what gets us angry. Something that, that, that we set up on the throne uh, over our lives. And when that gets threatened, we, we get angry. So anger is sinful when it tries to defend our ego or our idols or when it attacks others who are threatening our ego or threatening our idols. For example, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago if you were here. Uh, many years ago, I was counseling this woman who was extremely angry uh, against her husband. He was being a poor father and their eldest son, a teenager, was very rebellious, was getting into trouble. He threatened even to, even to run away from home. I told the husband he needed to spend a lot more time with his son because he kind of neglected him. And so the son was acting out in part. It's kind of a cry for attention. Uh, But because the husband really never did this, his wife was extremely bitter at him, extremely angry. Uh, And of course, I counseled the wife that she needed to forgive her husband. But she was unable uh, and unwilling to do so. And eventually, after many, many weeks, eventually realized that her bitterness and her anger was due to something very deep-seated within her. Uh, and she finally admitted that if her son didn't turn out well, that she would leave her husband. And in fact, she would probably leave the faith. She said, this is the one thing, the one thing I ask of God. If he, he doesn't have to give me anything else. I, but I cannot have my son go bad. This is the one non-negotiable in my life. Even God's will is not as important as this, she actually said. And if God does not give this to me, I cannot be happy. I'd be in complete despair. This is my one non-negotiable. This and this alone makes or breaks my life. How my children, and especially my oldest son... Uh, but really, all, how all my children, how they do. And if God doesn't answer this prayer, uh, I'll, I'll probably abandon him. And because she had made her son her idol, until she dealt with this idolatry, there was no solution for her anger. No solution for her bitterness. It would keep consuming her forever. You know, it's a place where C.S. Lewis, this interestingly, says... At first, the Germans killed the Jews because they hated them. But then they hated them because they killed them. The point is, when you mistreat someone out of anger, it does not dissipate or lessen the anger. Just the opposite. You get more angry as you mistreat them. It actually feeds and fuels the anger. It does not make it any better to give in to hate, to start to to pummel someone, or to do evil things against them, doesn't get rid of your hate. Just the opposite. By giving in to the dark side, you get more and more consumed by hate. And when that happens, you're on a roller coaster down and down and down forever. So I finally I told this woman, you'll never have a solution to your bitterness and your unforgiveness and your anger. And you'll be more and more in bondage to it. Forever. Until you renounce and repent from your idolatry. Because this thing you're defending and insisting on above all else that your children do well, this is your real God. Your real God is I've got to have my children happy and well adjusted and doing well. That's more important to you by your own admission than anything else. This is the idol in your life and you're unconsolably angry against your husband. Why? Because, because his neglect and his failure to be the father he should be is what's threatening your God. And so you have to destroy your husband in order to protect your God, to protect your idol. And so you will never get victory over your bitterness and your rage and your anger and your unforgiveness, I told her, unless you first decide that the only thing that's ultimately important is that you please God. God. Matthew six thirty three. seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all else will be added unto you. I told her, everything else that you need, you will get if you seek him first. If you stop making your children, uh, even this good thing, like your children, your idol, then you'll be able to deal with your husband, whom you see by his parental neglect as threatening your idol. Then and only then will you be able to deal with your anger. You're unable to forgive your husband because he's threatening your God. So as we we see in this example, unless you understand deep down what you're defending, you will not be able to deal appropriately with your anger. So the next time you get really angry, I want you to ask yourself, what am I defending? It's usually your pride. It's usually your reputation. It's usually your face. You don't want to lose face in front of others. And your pride and your reputation, it's it's too important to you. And the only way to deal with your anger is to deflate yourself. So ask yourself, is this really so important? Is this really the end-all and the be-all? What could be more important than pleasing God? If my anger uh, and my outbursts and my loss of temper, temper, is this pleasing to God? And if you can honestly ask yourself these questions, then you can begin to deal with your anger. So, anger is usually sinful because it's typically released to lash out at and to attack others, especially those who threaten our gods or injure our pride or our ego or our reputation. One of the biggest problems of evil in believers is that when you actually look into your heart, you realize most of the time that you're angry, you have both good and bad motives you have both sinful and righteous motives and responses so you have to realize your motives are almost always impure always mixed so you have to examine your soul and crucify your flesh and ruthlessly eliminate the bad and self-centered and ego-driven motives from your heart so what do you do with your anger Because you've got to deal with your anger in order to be patient. In order to have the fruit of patience in your life, you must deal biblically godly with your anger. Here are four things you can do on the overhead. Number one, first, you've got to admit your anger. No, this doesn't mean that you vent your anger. You know, contrary to a lot of pop psychology and pop psychologists, (laughs) venting your anger can be a terrible, destructive thing. Uh, But to admit your anger recognizes the fact that anger tends to hide. It hides itself. Hebrews twelve fifteen. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, by which many become defiled. Think about this phrase, a root of bitterness. What's the picture in your mind? You know, some plants and vegetables, carrots, onions, potatoes, they exist as roots meaning you can only see the very topmost part of the plant uh, or the vegetable, and then most of it is hidden underground, right? When the Bible describes anger or bitterness as being like a root, what it's conveying is that anger has a tendency to hide itself, to burrow down underneath, to take hold deep within your heart, uh, and being very hard to extract or or to eliminate, and thereby defiles you, uh, defiling and twisting and distorting your whole person. You don't know, or you won't admit it, that it's there. And then it takes hold, and it springs up, and it defiles, and it destroys you from within. You're eating up with it, like, like a spiritual cancer. We read a story about a man who was a POW in Japan in World War II. And for the rest of his life, he was consumed with hatred against the Japanese. And in a way, after the war, this man was more in prison than he ever was in the POW camp. My holy brothers and sisters of Etz Chaim, when you stay bitter at someone, you've lost. If you stay angry and bitter at someone, that's the only way the bad person with whom you're angry can still control you, can still hurt you. I recently told you a, while a couple of weeks ago about this guy years ago whose wife attended here That's Kaim, on her own. She wanted to bring her kids. Uh, all the kids wanted to come here, wanted to come to Junior Shabbat. But the husband, he would not let them come. And I'll never forget it. He said to me, I can't stop my wife from attending, but I'm not going to let my kids go. Why? Because my father forced me to go to school and to go to Hebrew school, and I hated it. And he wanted his grandkids to go, my kids to go, too. But I'm not going to let them. And this is how I'm getting back at my dad. And now I'm winning. I've won. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Look at that. This deep-seated anger and malice and resentment. A classic case of a root of bitterness controlling and defiling someone Now, the ironic thing, actually, was his father was dead, long dead. But even from the grave, his father was continuing to control him, controlling and motivating his behavior. So who really won? The son said, by keeping my kids from school, I'm winning over my father. But actually, his hatred for his father was controlling him. His child-rearing practices were still under the control of the man that he hates. This demonic root of bitterness was controlling and directing his life. Bitterness is the the, the one and only way you you unconsciously uh, stay under the control of the one you're bitter against. How ironic is that? It only hurts you. You stay in prison. So you have to admit your anger and repent and release it to the Lord. That 's number one, admit your anger and the overhead number two you 've got to understand your anger. Ask yourself when you get angry or when you 're about to get angry, what am I defending when you get really angry and mean and lose control and you start to see red and your eyes pop out and you scream and you yell, stop and you stop thinking rationally, you know uh, uh, now of course that 's none of you, none of you ever do that. <laughs> But if you ever were to get this way, it's usually because you're defending your ego and your pride, which is being attacked. Or you're defending your schedule and your plans, uh, which are being messed up. Or because you want to control someone, uh, your spouse, your child, an employee, an underling, and they refuse to submit to your control. And so you're full of self-pity and wounded pride and loss of face. Uh, And frustration at someone defying you or or challenging you. Uh, And you you react with this intense anger and malice uh, and bitterness and outbursts. uh, And lack of self-control and resentment and retaliation. And by the way, people can see this. Your family can see this. They know the difference between righteous anger, which is pretty rare. And sinful, carnal, fleshly anger, which is pretty common. So when you get angry, ask yourself, what am I really trying to defend here by getting so angry? What am I really defending? Is it my pride? is it my ego? And if it is, read jeremiah forty five verse five where read it to yourself, where God says to someone who's very upset and angry, God says, "Do you seek great things for yourself??" Seek them not. Jeremiah 45, 5. No matter how angry you are, if there's any bit of selfishness or self-righteousness in your anger, if what you're really defending in part is your own glory, uh, your own image, your own reputation, then think on these words from Jeremiah. Seekest thou great things for yourself? Seek them not. Think on this verse. Let the conviction of the Holy Spirit deflate your anger. Kind of of like a pin pricking a balloon. Because that's often why you're out of control with anger. You're seeking great things for yourself. Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. This will help you deal with your anger. Put it in a biblical perspective. And thereby help you actually get biblical patience. So to deal with your anger, number one, you've got to admit it on the overhead. Uh, Number two, uh, understand the dynamic behind it. Number three, channel it. That's what God the Father does. That's what, that's what Yeshua does. Uh, anger is energy. Uh, and therefore, if you want to become a patient person, uh, uh, you, you, you can't just stuff it down. You know, There are two equal but opposite mistakes that people make with anger. On the one hand, we're told, don't blow up. Uh, Ephesians 4.31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, every form of malice. But on the other hand, Ephesians 4.26 says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't don't just hold it in. Ephesians 4.29, don't let any unwholesome, angry talk come out of your mouth. But it, it doesn't say to clam up, no. Ephesians 4.29 says, but only but only say what's helpful for building others up according to their needs. And so based on this passage, this biblical psychologist, Jay Adams, he says two things. He says, Don't blow up, don't clam up. <laughs> Blowing up means you vent, right? You release your anger to destroy people. Clamming up uh, means you keep it on the inside. So it destroys you. So you can release your anger and tear other people up. You can hold it on the inside and it tears you up. And they'll all on the overhead. Both of these are wrong. Don't let the sun go down in your anger means don't stuff it, but rather attack the problem, not the person. Take your anger and use it, channel it to attack the problem and not the person. That's what we're told here in verse 29. Ephesians 4, 29. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs. So instead of just clamming up, deciding not to say anything about your anger, keeping it bottled up within, and also instead of blowing up and, uh, and using unwholesome, rancid, putrid, uh, acidic words... Instead, say, what can productively and redemptively deal with this issue? How can I deal with this problem and not lash out at people? Now, this is actually, I'm serious now. This has actually never happened, but let me give you an example. Let's say I forgot Elizabeth's anniversary. There are two ways, there's two ways she could deal with it. Oh, by the way, it also happens with my anniversary too. (laughs) We thought it would be helpful if we got married on the same day. <laughs> so if I forgot our anniversary, there were two ways Elizabeth could deal with it. The first way she could get very upset, confront me. She could say, You know, you're really good, David, at remembering all these apartments with all these people from the shool, but not important dates for your own family? Not even our our wedding anniversary? What am I, chopped liver? why are people from the shul higher priority than me you're only concerned about yourself not me I've had it then there's a second option David I know you're really busy I hate to bring this up but you actually forgot our anniversary and I'm pretty hurt and I'm really angry But I know you did not do it intentionally and I want to know what can I do to help For example, can I show you how to use the calendar function on your iPhone? (laughs) Can I show you how to program automatic reminders? (laughs) So you won't forget important dates, like, hint, hint, our anniversary. (laughs) Can I please show, I know you're technically challenged, technologically challenged, but can I please show you how to set this up? (laughs) I don't want to get bitter and angry with you over all these missed dates. Uh, And and this thing they call the iPhone, it can really help you if you know how to use it. (laughs) Now, what is she doing in the second example? She's attacking the problem, not the person. She's dealing with the underlying issue, my forgetfulness, and not attacking my character. She's being honest about my failure and how it hurt her. But she's not resorting to these ad hominem attacks uh, and arguments against me. She's not saying, this is just like you. You're so selfish. You're so self-centered. You're so thoughtless. Your priorities are all screwed up. Instead, in the second example, she deals with with it redemptively. She says, David, you've got a problem here. And it's a serious problem. uh, And it's affecting me, and I'm hurt. Uh, I'm upset, and we need to deal with it. I have a suggestion. Here's my proposed solution. And the difference between these uh, two approaches is as different as night and day. In the first approach, the angry approach, I'm not really going to be able to respond to the issue, am I? I'm not going to be able to talk about the issue. Why? All I'm probably going to be able to do is to defend myself and to attack back. I'm going to say, "Oh yeah, you don't have your house in order either, you know." (laughs) What about this and this and this? All the things that you do, all the things that you forget. You just like your mother. <laughs> and then it's downhill from there. <laughs> you see, because if she comes after me, uh, my immediate, fleshly, sinful, carnal response is to one, defend myself, and number two, because the best defense is a good offense, to, to attack her. <laughs> but in the second approach, Elizabeth now leaves the door open for me to much more easily repent of what I've done and to apologize and to humble myself and to be sympathetic to her hurt and her anger and to be totally open to working together to solve the problem. Why? Because she has redemptively channeled her anger to attack the problem and not the person. Don't blow up. Don't clam up. But show biblical patience by channeling your anger into a positive, redemptive purpose. Anger is energy. It must be dealt with. Or you will not have the fruit of the spirit of patience. So on the overhead. Number one, with your anger. Number one, admit it. On the overhead. uh, Number two, understand it. Number three, channel it. And lastly, and most importantly, forgive. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other. Just as in Messiah God forgave you. In Ephesians 2, Paul said the only way God could deal with the hostility between people is ultimately through the cross. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 14. For he is our peace. He made one new man out of two, reconciling us to God by the cross, putting to death our hostility. Now, in this particular case here in Ephesians 2, if you read the whole chapter, Paul's talking about the hostility between Jew and Gentile. But he's using this really as a case study. Uh, to show us how pride takes our gifts and uses them to create hostility. Paul discusses the hostility the Jews had against the Gentiles because of, of, of the, the, the Jews' gifts. Uh, God had blessed our Jewish people mightily uh, with many spiritual gifts. Uh, we had the Torah and the prophets and the writings. We had the temple and the sacrifices and the holidays and the ceremonies. And of course, most of all, we had the Messiah himself we had a much more spiritual light and truth and revelation than any other people on the whole face of the earth. And God's goal was for us to use these gifts to be a light to the Gentiles and to serve other people in order to share God's good news and to draw them to the Lord as well. To draw, and to draw our Jewish people closer to the Gentiles and to outreach in, in outreach to reach out to them in love and in fellowship. But instead... Too often, what what pride did is that it took these gifts, uh, it it puffed them up, and it turned them into hostility, in this example, against the pagan Gentile nations, uh, against them and and against uh, other ethnic groups and peoples. Pride took these good gifts and turned them into anger. uh, So that many of our fellow Jews in the first century, we looked down our noses uh, at our neighbors from the nations, saying, why should we have anything to do with these Gentile dogs? They don't follow God's law. They don't know what we know. Now, Paul is not picking on the Jews here. Paul himself was a Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's using this as a case study on pride and anger. And every one of us is just as guilty. And the more gifted you are, the more easy it is to fall into pride and and vanity and arrogance For example, have you ever been around really gifted kids who are in the accelerated classes, the advanced placement, uh, the talented and gifted programs, the ones who, who go to the smart schools? Stick around and just listen and see what their attitude is towards. The ordinary people toward the hoi polloi, the great unwashed, you know, the bourgeois, uh, the common people, you know, the ordinary students. <laughs> the attitude often is these lesser kids, you know, they're such boars, you know, such Philistines, you know, uh, uh, they're so, so beneath us. <laughs> we'll be surprised to see what they think. <laughs> what happened? They had a gift from God and pride took it and turned it and twisted it into hostility. Here's another example. Women. Women are more adaptable than men in general. Studies show even at the very earliest ages, the earliest stages of development of newborn babies, from from birth up until the age of two or three, very young, girl babies, when they get near an object or an obstacle, uh, they go around it. Whereas boy babies kind of mindlessly plow right through it. (laughs) <laughs> from the very beginning, women have the ability to, to adapt in a way that men don't. It's a gift. It is a gender gift. <laughs> I know it's probably not politically correct to acknowledge any and any differences between the sexes, but my goal is not to be politically correct. <laughs> my goal is to be truthful. And this is a gender-based gift that God gave to women. What do some women do with this gift? They use it to make themselves feel superior to men and to laugh at the male ego. (laughs) So pride comes along, it twists and it misuses our gifts and it turns them into hostility. And the New Testament reveals that the cross and only the cross can change that. How? Galatians 6, 14. Paul says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says, I glory in the cross, the tree, the execution stake. In the cross of Messiah, I glory. Glory, the word is kavod in Hebrew. It means weight, it means gravitas, it means significance. So if you take uh, uh, your identity from your gifts, if, for example, the most important things in your life, whatever they are, uh, your children, uh, your accomplishments, your adaptability, your intelligence, uh, your morality and and your religiousness, if you take your identity from those things, your pride will use it to generate hostility towards those who don't have these gifts or towards those who threaten your gifts. It'll give you a spirit of superiority, a spirit of judgmentalism towards others. Recently, I heard about a young man who went to a psychologist for depression. And the psychologist told him, your problem, surprise, surprise, is you have low self-esteem. <laughs> so he said... Here's my solution. Think of something uh, you're good at or you would like to be good at. Uh, and, and he says, the kid says, okay, I would really like to be a good guitarist. He says, okay. So, so the psychologist, the counselor said, okay, every time you get depressed, I want you to imagine playing the best guitar solos ever in this big public concert and bringing down the house to thunderous applause. So the young man did that, and that made him feel good at first. But he realized, I'll never be that good. (laughs) I'll never be anywhere near that good. And so it made him even more depressed. (laughs) And it did not help. And by the way, even if he ever were to be that good, uh, pride would take that gift and puff him up and cause him to look down his nose at everybody else who wasn't that good. So if you don't ever get to be that good, you spend the rest of your life in envy and resentment. And if you ever do get to be the good spending your life in pride and arrogance, and so you're on this roller coaster ride, because the thing that gives you the most weight in your life is creating hostility. But if in the cross of Yeshua, you glory. If you see that you have a personal relationship with the God of the universe, because and only because of what Yeshua did on that tree, on that execution stake, if that's what you take your identity from, if that is what now gives you the greatest weight, glory, cavode in your life, the Bible says that and only that is what will destroy the hostility that exists between people. You cannot stay bitter at someone if you remember that you yourself are a sinner saved by grace. And sheer grace alone, and therefore you're no better than anyone else. It humbles you. It motivates you to drop your hostility. To forgive others, because you know that you have been forgiven. You can't think uh, on how much you've been saved by God's grace and his mercy, uh, and how much, you, how much you have been freely freely forgiven by him. You cannot do that and still stay bitter at somebody else. It cannot be done. Remember the old story of the Hatfields and the McCoys? This was this long-standing, 100-year-old family feud, Between the Hatfields of West Virginia and the McCoys of Kentucky. uh, Started in the second half of the 19th century. Resulted in dozens and dozens of deaths over the years on both sides. Taking revenge on each other back and forth, back and forth. Well, how did it ever end? Well, finally, one Hatfield and one McCoy became real believers. And they reconciled and they forgave uh, and they made up. Because in their life, the cross now has more weight than their family's bloody record of hostility uh, and and family pride uh, and hatred and revenge. Uh, The the age-old generational feud of this bitter grudge no longer drove their lives. Nothing now drove their lives except the cross, that tree of death that became the etz the tree of life. Do you want to deal with your anger? And the overhead number 1 you've got to admit your anger. Number 2 you've got to understand its roots and what's driving it. Number 3 you've got to channel it into a godly response. And number 4 most of all you must forgive. And the only way to get rid of the hostility and to forgive is through the cross of Messiah. And only then can you walk in the fruit of patience. Only then we you not be blowing up or clamming up. And then you'll have remarkable impact positively on others. Ephesians 4, 31. Get rid of all bitterness, anger and rage, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Just as in Messiah, God forgave you. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Get the music team to please come up. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you today. And we ask you, Lord, for your help. We ask you, Lord, to help us to put off our worldly, fleshly, carnal anger. Anger driven by our pride and our reputation, our desire to save face, or to assert assert our control over others, or to defend our egos and our idols. Uh, and our inordinate desires and selfishness. Lord, help me today to have no unwholesome, putrid, rancid, acidic talk come out of my mouth. Help me to put to death my outbursts of anger, my loss of temper, my hatred, my resentment, and unforgiveness and grudges. Lord, I repent. And I turn from my bitterness and my rage and anger and brawling and slander and malice. Help me, Lord, to die for the self-centered, prideful, ego-driven motives that, Lord, I admit reside in my heart. Help me to admit my anger, not to hide it, not to bury it, not to live in denial. Not to let a root of bitterness like a cancer take hold of my heart and defile me. Lord, help me to understand what's driving my anger, what idols I'm trying to protect, uh, what, part of, of, uh, what part of my pride and ego and reputation I'm trying to defend. Help me not to seek great things for myself. And Lord, help me to channel my anger into redemptive, godly purposes. Help me not to, not to blow up, not to clam up. Rather, help me to use my anger to attack the problem and not the person. And Lord, finally, most of all, help me to forgive. Just as you, Yeshua, have forgiven me. I can't say bitter at others if I remember that I am a sinner too. Saved only by your grace, Yeshua. So help me to forgive. Just as the Messiah, you, Lord, forgave me. For I pray this all in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat shalom. My heart rejoices in the Lord, my horn is exalted in us.